Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. For this one last episode, I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. And stick around after the interview. Matt Beyer is back with Science in Action. Well, the day has arrived. This is my last episode as host of the Union of Concerned Scientists podcast. As I mentioned in the episode before this, I'm stepping down to spend more time with my turtle friends, rescuing and helping to rehabilitate stranded migrating turtles. From now on, you'll be in the very capable hands of our newest podcast host and science ambassador, Jess Phoenix. I'm going to introduce Jess in just a moment, and you'll get to hear from her about her legitimately thrilling background as a volcanologist and extremely curious adventurer, and the ideas she has for our show going forward. But first, a note of gratitude. I'm not a very sentimental person, so I won't draw this out. I just want to say thank you. To all our listeners and subscribers and UCS members, to the stations that pick us up, to the folks who follow us on Twitter, to the folks who've written in to chat with me about our episodes, this podcast wouldn't have gone anywhere without you. Thank you for listening all these years. Short and sweet, I hope. And now, on to Jess Phoenix. Jess is a geologist, explorer, and science communicator. Specializing in volcanoes and natural hazards, she regularly makes guest appearances on CNN and other networks and has appeared in numerous Discovery Channel and Science Channel programs and series, including Trailblazers and What on Earth. She also created and hosted the podcast Catastrophe, so she knows a thing or 100 about podcasting. In this role, Jess will serve as an ambassador to the public for putting science into action to solve the planet's most pressing problems. I'm so excited to introduce her and to give you a preview of her ideas and plans for this podcast. Stay tuned for our chat on Jess's most exciting moments as a field geologist, her thoughts about science and curiosity, and to learn why she always brings her chewing gum on field expeditions. And finally, a programming note. We'll be replaying some greatest hits from Got Science in the coming weeks as the next incarnation of the Union of Concerned Scientists podcast takes shape. And with that, let me officially pass the mic. Jess, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Colleen. I'm really excited to talk to you. I'm really excited to have you on. I'm super excited that you're going to be taking over the podcast. And I thought it'd be great for our listeners to learn a little bit more about you. So, you know, you started out as an English major in college, then you shifted to become a history major, and then somehow you ended up as a geologist, volcanologist. So what happened? How did you get hooked on science? I've always loved science. From from day one, I've been the kid who just says, why, how, where, what? <laughs> and uh, I, I read obsessively as a kid. Um, my parents couldn't possibly get me enough books. Uh, so right from the beginning, I wanted to know what makes the grass green? Why do clouds exist? Um, you know, how old is this rock? Uh, what kind of animal is that? And so for me, science is just a natural extension of my innate human curiosity. And I, I do believe that every single person on planet Earth is born with that curiosity. It, it just defines who we are as a species. And retaining that curiosity is what has been my greatest joy in the transition from the you know humanities over to the sciences is that I've gotten to um, 
ask questions, find answers, and just keep exploring. So science to me is the greatest adventure anybody could possibly have. (laughs) So was there something in particular that happened that really shifted you from history to science? Yes. And it was actually one of those cases where you have to think back on it and say, oh, there was a silver lining. I ended up uh, almost failing out of college. I was uh, in undergrad at Smith College in Western Massachusetts. And I I think I became very depressed. I barely left my dorm room, pretty much failed all of my classes one semester. And I was going to get Fs in every class. And there was a really nice dean at Smith, Margaret Roselius, and she talked to me when she realized what was happening. And she said, well, I can't fix this for you, but what I can do is give you a retroactive medical withdrawal. So I basically withdrew from college that semester. My transcript showed all W's, which means withdrew instead of all F's. And then she said, you're not going to be able to come back to Smith until you've shown us that you're healthy, that you're doing okay, you have to take another semester somewhere else. So I went to the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and I took classes as an extension student. And during that semester, I said, I need to be kind to myself. So I ended up taking Earth Science 101, uh, because why not? Sounds cool. And I'm curious about it. And the class was once a week, four hours for the class session. It was from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. on UMass's campus. And the professor was a very sweet man named Peter Panish. And he was he, he was a very dry lecturer, but the topics were so fascinating, so amazing that, I mean, I fell in love after the first lecture because the questions I had always asked, like, why are mountains where they are? He answered those. And the fact that there are ways to find out about these things that are fundamentally, you know, curious that to us as humans, that really drew me to it. And so I made an effort to take as many science classes as possible when I got back to Smith. And I made it out of college, but I didn't have time to change my major. So I kind of kept it in my back pocket for a few years and said, well, someday maybe I'll go get a degree in science. And uh, I was able to make that happen. And I got my master's in geology from Cal State Los Angeles. Well, it sounds like your parents probably wished he'd been your babysitter when you were a kid asking all those questions. Oh, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> my parents are not scientists. So they, they, they don't totally get me right now, but they, they understand that who I am is a curious person. <laughs> so, Jess, I read your book and was amazed at all of your adventures during your research. Can you share one of your favorite stories about your time out in the field? Sure. And I will tell you one that's not in the book because it's fun. So I adore scientific field work. It's the best. And the reason I like geology is that you can go out and touch a lot of the things that you study. If someone says, oh, there's a fault here, you can reach out and poke the fault. <laughs> it's it's not abstract. It's very much a concrete physical science. And so I love getting out and being in these dangerous or unsettling or unexpected situations. And in 2010, I was asked to go to Hawaii with a group of researchers who were trying to kind of refine a technique called cosmogenic nuclide dating, which is basically where you use cosmic radiation to 
determine when geologic events happened because they're recorded in the rocks. I'm not explaining it super well, but basically the gist of it is the rocks are clocks. So we can tell when they got into that place. And that's really helpful on volcanoes because you can date modern eruptions. And so you can calibrate your your dating system by using known events. So I was with a group of scientists and they had rented some vehicles. And one in particular was a bright yellow Jeep Wrangler. And the tires weren't great on this, this Wrangler. So it was a group of, I think there were four of us in the Jeep at that point. And as we're driving up, we're going up this, this rocky lava filled road. I mean, it's literally all made of lava because that's what the big Island is. It's lava. So we're going up this road. It's super rocky. The rock itself is glassy and sharp. And then we're driving and the driver, Joe, he, he kind of says, Oh, I, weird. I think we got a flat tire. So we all jump out and we look and there's a puncture in the sidewall of one of these, the tires on the Jeep. So we are on the side of the world's largest volcano with a tire that's rapidly losing air. I'm sitting there. I'm like, does anyone have gum? And everybody's looking around for gum. And, and then we grabbed a ballpoint pen and jammed it into the hole in the sidewall. And it, it started to like plug the hole temporarily. So then we go to check the spare and the spare is pretty much flat. <laughs> and so we're sitting here going, oh my God, we can't let this tire lose more air. So we had found gum at that point. We chewed the gum. We pulled the pen out of the hole, shoved the gum over the hole, and then duct taped it in place. So we put a patch on a tire on the side of the world's largest volcano with bubble gum, a ballpoint pen, and duct tape. So it's a little bit of, you know, scientific inquiry and a lot of MacGyver when you're out in the field. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was just thinking this is total MacGyver stuff here. Like, what can you do with a paperclip? And, you know, who knew chewing gum would be so important? Yes, I always have some in the field now. There's a few things that I have to take with me. Um, gum is one of them. And duct tape, of course, a good knife and a rock hammer, as well as some gloves. Like, I won't go in the field without those things. <laughs> right. So... Switching gears, you've done so many things. So you founded an organization that helps young scientists gain field experience. Why was that so important to you? One of the big things I noticed as a young scientist, as I was moving my way through the world of academia, is that, and I think a lot of this comes to the fact that I went to Cal State Los Angeles for grad school, which is, and Cal State LA is a federally recognized minority serving institution, their term, not mine. Um, so it's predominantly students of color and students from low income backgrounds. And the Cal State system is great. It does a really good job of making educational opportunities accessible. But even the Cal State LA geology field camp I mean, there was a cost associated with it. Plus, if you have a student who has to work as well, I mean, not only are they taking time away from their job, but they're literally losing income to go and do these field expeditions that are a necessary part of becoming a scientist when you work in the field, like a lot of geologists do. So I also know that if you want to go to some field camps, it can cost you anywhere from $1,000 to $9,000. So it's not accessible. When I founded Blueprint Earth with my now husband, Carlos, the idea was let's make 
hands-on scientific field research that spans disciplines. So we don't just do geology. We do biology, hydrology, atmospheric science, and ecology. And we've started doing a little bit of archaeology-related work because there are some archaeological uh, findings in the area where we do our research, which is California's Mojave Desert. Uh, we started this program and we made it no cost to the students and we couldn't pay the students to come out, but we could offer them if they could get some hiking boots and, you know, a good attitude, we would basically take care of everything else. We provide transportation to the field locations. We uh, can even lend students camping gear and we give them instruction in how to camp safely and in scientific research field methods when they're out there and they get to work across disciplines with scientists in other fields. That just sounds like such an amazing experience for students. I mean, I wish I had access to that in college. Who who knows what I'd be doing right now? Well, you know, you're not exactly boring these days. The sea turtle thing is pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, it, it's true. You know, a lot of what you're saying resonates with me. I really enjoy the hands-on aspect of working with sea turtle rescue and you know, there's a bit of MacGyver to that as well. We're we're constantly constructing things and trying to figure out for example, you know, this turtle can't lift its head, but we want it swimming. So how can we create something that will enable it to keep its nares above the water, but also swim? So we're, we're constantly constructing things. And that's what I tell people that is really the heart of science. It's creative problem solving. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. Got Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. Now let's get back to our interview. You've traveled all over the world, and what are some of the key lessons that you've learned when you're traveling to different cultures and studying volcanoes in non-English speaking countries? What are some of the lessons that you've learned? Well, it's really important to me to respect the local traditions and the local scientists because you cannot beat local expertise. There's no scenario where you need to have a white American scientist parachute in to save the day because if a local agency asks for collaboration help, fine. But just to assume that, you know, because we speak English, because we have the educational traditions in our country that we do, that we know better than anybody else around the world is so presumptuous. So for me, I really want to work with people who are on the ground. And that doesn't just mean the scientists. It means local people as well, because a lot of indigenous traditional knowledge is actually very helpful in understanding current phenomena. So... I really like to do background research on not just the geologic setting, if I'm doing something geology related, but also the traditions. Like I go out of my way to ask what the names of, say, volcanoes mean to the, you know, the local people. What does it mean in the local language? And sometimes it gives you interesting insight. You know, there's a volcano I worked on in Ecuador called El Reventador, which means the eruptor. <laughs> and so when you go there and you think, wow, it's erupting every 30 minutes, huh? They were right. You get a bit of perspective and insight by 
not just focusing on the science, but also on the sociocultural conditions of the area you're researching. And obviously, if you're you know researching paleoclimate, you're not going to be able to talk to anybody who was around during the uh, last glacial maximum. So you have to stick to, okay, what have you seen in your lifetime? And you can get a lot of insight that way. So to me, you need to practice science in a more holistic fashion. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. So we always have to take into account the reality of the people who live where we're doing the work and and try to give local scientists a voice whenever possible and promote them as experts on their home area. And, and I think that's really important, especially when we go and make media about these, these interesting places. So one thing I really hope to do with the podcast is highlight the boots on the ground people that I'm going to get to talk to, because they're the ones rolling up their sleeves day after day, getting it done. Well, you just gave me a great segue to my next question, which is, you'll be serving as a science ambassador at the Union of Concerned Scientists. You're hosting the next incarnation of our podcast. You'll also be hosting a YouTube channel. So what should folks expect? What do you have up your sleeve? Well, I think the really important thing to note is that I don't claim to speak for all scientists. What I do very well, better than even my science work, because you know I'm, I'm a decent scientist when I get a chance to actually do the, the science, but I am much better at explaining complex things to people from maybe non-scientific backgrounds. So I really hope to create a nice bridge between the science that's being done, the activism around that science, and people who may be hesitant about science or say like, I don't think it's for me. I did really badly in chemistry in 10th grade. I would really like to reach a whole wide swath of the the listening public because all of this does belong to us. We have this shared birthright as humans that we are curious. So we need to inspire people to use that curiosity to make the world a better place. So I'm really hoping to to go on location sometimes to talk to people, not just scientists, but also a variety of stakeholders. So people who are impacted by the things that we're going to be discussing, like air pollution, climate change, public health crises, the threat of nuclear war. I really want to talk to people and amplify the voices that are demanding change and also give our listeners uh, tools that they can access change um, and help drive change. So everything from informing them about scholarship opportunities or where they can go to get reliable scientific information to showing them cool and fun things in the world of science. So I want it to be a nice blend of serious science. I need that to underpin everything that we do. But I really, really want to make sure that science in the 21st century has a future in the hearts and minds of as many people as I possibly can. Well, that sounds amazing. I'm really happy that we've got you on board to move the work forward. I'm super excited to see what comes next. Well, you've given me big shoes to fill, and uh, I will do my best. <laughs> so just before we wrap up, I have to ask you this one last question. And I think it's probably the bravest thing you've done, never mind practically stepping in molten lava or climbing up a mountain with a bum leg. You decided at one point to run for Congress. So tell us about that experience. You know, it was a very 
strange time in U.S. history. And I can say that as somebody who has a degree in history. <laughs> and, you know, I also study geologic time. So in the 4.54, give or take a few billions of years that we've been around as a planet, we had never seen anything quite like the political upheaval that came with the election of Donald Trump. And I think that what really inspired me to step into the political arena was that the Republican congressman in my district was a climate science denier. And he also didn't really believe in anything other than adhering to the party's talking points. And for me, when the party's talking points are, don't listen to the science, reject the evidence, that right there, that's enough to light a fire under me. And I said, I have to do something because the scientific community for a long time had been really terrified of having any kind of visible political stances because there's a bit of confusion. People believe that science is not political and scientists should never, ever have political positions on anything because they're supposed to be impartial. And to that, I say that science is inherently political. The scientific method is not. Science itself is political because a lot of science is funded by governments. And who in the government uh, controls the purse strings really does dictate a lot of what science gets funded. So if you want government that funds science, you have to elect people who listen to scientists and respect data and use evidence to make policies. I really was afraid that we were going to have no evidence-based policymaking during the Trump years, and we had very little of it. So my run for Congress was saying, look, the scientific method, the way we collect the data and the way that we analyze the data, that is objective. That is not political. The process is designed to be objective. And we do our best as humans to follow the process so that the results we get are as accurate as possible. And we're constantly trying to break what we understand. If you can break it, then you learn and you refine your understanding of the world. So we don't have to be right all the time in our hypotheses or assumptions, but what we do need to do as a scientific community, whether you're a scientist who's actually out doing research, if you're in academia and you're teaching, or if you're a science enthusiast, you need to use your platform because these big issues, if we have knowledge of them, especially specialized professional knowledge, we need to go out and speak to that. We need to use evidence to influence policy because otherwise policy decisions are made based on feelings. And I would hate to have that be our reality going forward because when we say I feel, there's nothing to substantiate that. Feelings are valid, but they are not facts. They are not reality necessarily. So for me, running for office was really a chance to use a megaphone and say, hey, scientists, wake up, like get engaged. Now is the time. We need your voices. That doesn't mean you have to run around and yell at everybody you see, but you do need to get involved. You need to vote. You need to run for offices, whether it's local or state or federal. But we need scientists to have a seat at the table because no one will advocate for science unless we do. Well, Jess, thanks so much for talking to me today. I'm really excited about where you're going to take the podcast and what we're going to see on the YouTube channel. And I just want to wish you the best of luck. 
Well, thanks so much for everything you've done for science, Colleen. It's absolutely impressive what you've managed to accomplish with the podcast. And I hope to honor that legacy and, you know, go to whole new frontiers and get a lot of people engaged and and optimistic. I think we need things to be optimistic right now. So let's make reasons to be optimistic for ourselves because no one else is going to do it for us. And now it's time for Science in Action with Matt Beyer. As a lifelong resident of sunny California, I'll admit that Chicago is not high on my list of winter travel getaways. But that's precisely where I spent about a week this past December. And no, I was not there for the chilly weather. I was attending the American Geophysical Union meeting, a yearly conference convening over 25,000 researchers, scientists, educators, policymakers, and students from across the world. The American Geophysical Union, or AGU, meeting is one of the largest and most prominent conferences of its kind, dedicated to the advancement of Earth and space sciences. I'd never actually been to a major scientific conference before, and I didn't quite know what to expect. Endless presentations on esoteric topics, awkward karaoke after parties. But no, it was so much more than that. Conferences like AGU bring together individuals from across the scientific community, from those who do science to those who communicate about science to those who put science into action. During my four days at the meeting, I had the privilege of attending presentations on forward-thinking climate science research. I joined discussions on the best way for scientists to form partnerships with community members. I spoke with dozens of scientists and researchers who visited the UCS exhibit hall booth about their work and how they could get more involved in science advocacy. I even visited an exhibition on the intersections of climate action and art. There's a lot that goes on at AGU. Most importantly, I found that the conference was an incredible opportunity to connect with a diverse group of individuals around a central goal, how to put science into action to achieve a healthier, safer, more livable future. Nowhere was as clearer to me than during a town hall discussion hosted by UCS on how scientists can engage in climate litigation, meaning legal cases informed by science that are meant to hold fossil fuel polluters accountable for climate change and the damages they've done. I got thrown into the deep end to moderate this town hall, which featured UCS climate scientist Delta Murner, UCS fellow Shana Sadai, and Climate Science Legal Defense Fund Director, Lauren Kurtz. Over the course of the town hall, Delta, Shana, and Lauren discussed the evolving field of legal cases aimed at the fossil fuel industry's deception, fraud, and damages, and the cutting-edge science exploring the attribution of those harms directly to climate change. What followed was an in-depth discussion with the attendees who were scientists, practitioners, and educators across a range of disciplines and expertise who are all interested in understanding how they could leverage their own research to get more involved in holding polluters responsible. It was heartening to interact with so many scientists interested in making the connection between their own work and the legal battles communities across the globe are already undertaking. One of the attendees, a college professor, shared with me how excited she was to bring the information she had learned back to her students. Her enthusiasm was a reminder to me 
that science is at its best when it moves beyond the walls of a conference center and is shared with the individuals and organizations fighting to solve the problems facing their communities. Like the town hall attendees, I left AGU excited and recommitted to the crucial mission of leveraging science to create real-world change. I'm already excited for my next scientific conference, perhaps somewhere with warmer weather. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science Podcast. Special thanks to Jess Phoenix and a big welcome. Science in Action was brought to you by Matt Beyer. Editing by Colleen MacDonald and Omari Spears. Additional editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. It's been a great journey. Thank you. This is Jess Phoenix again, and I just want to say thanks to Colleen for everything you've done for science advocacy over the years. I'm really excited to follow in your footsteps and see where we'll go. Thanks also to Matt Beyer for his report from the AGU conference. And if you're following the conference, go check out our recent blog on the UCS website by Erica Spanger Siegfried. It's all about science activism and it ties into AGU. Thanks so much, everyone, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Colleen.